Uh, so to Parenting We Go, our guest is John Marsden, with us again on 9 to Noon to talk about why he thinks kids need to take more risks. It's a philosophy he's had throughout his career as an educator and author. It has been a motto, a motto rather, at Candlebark, one of the two schools he's founded in his home state of Victoria and Australia. Many of you, of course, will recognise him as the author of the brilliant Tomorrow series. Uh, John last spoke to us two years ago, though, about his book The Art of Growing Up, a, pare- a parenting manifesto drawing on his decades of working with and writing for young people. This latest work is Take Risks, Raising Kids Who Love the Adventure of Life. Uh, John, welcome back to Nine to Noon. Thank you very, very much for your time. Ah, thanks, Catherine. Pleasure to be here. It's reflective, this book, in many ways, of the frustrations, fulminations, I think, in one chapter title, and um, and innovations of your long career. And just maybe at the outset, just remind listeners of your own journey of ultimately getting to the point of starting your own schools. What had got you to that stage? Well, that's a huge question. I could go for half an hour on that alone, but I won't. Um, I sat. I went to a very conservative school in Sydney, and by the age of 14, 15, I just started questioning everything and looking at the things that clearly didn't work and wondering why they persevered with them and why they didn't change them and wondering why they didn't have any innovations or try any new ideas. And um, that's where it all began, really. I spent... Uh, the next 10 years after I left school, pretty much bumming around. I couldn't find anything that really engaged me or captured my attention. But I did a teaching course when I was about 28 and um, loved it from the outset and went into schools with a very uh, overt desire to reform them and change them and uh, really get people to think more carefully and more uh, creatively about how schools could be better structured and run. So, yeah, it's been... uh, teaching and visiting schools as an author was very powerful too because it meant that I went to thousands, literally thousands, probably around 3,000 schools in all around the world and um, I saw things that worked and I thought, great, God, if you put that into any school, that would be fantastic. And I saw things that were awful and I thought, why on earth do they persevere with stuff that is so toxic? So, yeah, it just all evolved to the point where I thought if I start my own school and put in all the things I've seen that work and don't have any of the things that don't work, then it could be pretty, pretty, you know, it could run pretty well. A lot of this is about uh, the, the creativity that is squeezed out of kids in the education system, but a big focus is this question of risk. And the book is Take Risks. It's the motto of the two schools you've founded. In, in the context of schooling, in, a context, in the context of kids... Um, lives together in some kind of formal setting what is it that you refer to what are some of the things that we used to do that we don't get to do now and that you brought back in those schools well i'd sum it up by saying that it's about first-hand experiences rather than second or third or fourth-hand experiences because i started noticing about 20 years ago that young people were they had no conversation anymore except that they would talk about what they'd seen on TV the night before, or if they had any stories about real-life experiences, it wouldn't be experiences that they'd had, but it'd be experiences that their parents or grandparents would have had. And so they'd tell me about what their grandparents and parents did when they were kids. They'd tell me about, you know, stories often, but they didn't have any stories of their own. And I thought, this, this is just not right. We shouldn't be living our lives 
via Bear Grylls or the uh, Top Gear team on BBC television, we should be getting out there and doing things ourselves. And so the schools I'm running, we say proudly and boastfully that we have more excursions than any school in Australia, but I've never been challenged on that and I'd be struggling to find a school that could do what we do. But we do it economically, we're thrifty, we're not extravagant, but we do it. And so kids go on canoe trips, they go on bike camps, they go on cross-country ski tours, they go on hikes, they go on camps, they have sleepovers at school, they have trips to galleries and museums and operas and concerts and theatres and so on. And it's all part of becoming, just building good foundation stones, laying good foundation stones for their adult lives. Because if you don't have that kind of childhood and adolescence, I'm afraid there's a fair chance you'll be a very boring person. And so it makes them more interesting, lively people, but it also gives them an understanding of the world, which is sadly making people who grow up in, a, in what's cliche, in a cliched way called the cotton wool uh, upbringing that so many kids have nowadays. It's an interesting Most point you make that, that they've the all... Yeah, they're almost becoming observers of life rather than participants is, is kind of the point you're making. But it comes down to this basic stuff too, and I want to talk about the physical, the removal of physical risks from children's lives. Um, climbing trees, remember the, it was an instrument of torture, the good old jungle gym, but God, we loved it. And, you know, there would be tumbles <laughs> off it and there'd be the odd broken bone. But this is these are physical skills and they are also cognitive skills that are connected, and have they? Has much of it been removed, really, from the school environment? Anyway, the, the the playground is basically just a little kind of safety zone without those physical calculations and challenges you used to have to make. Oh, to a dramatic extent, in the space of one generation, it's changed in such a huge way that it would be hard for people who haven't had close contact with schools lately to comprehend. But the typical school area now has rules like no running. So uh, in the playground at lunchtime, a recess, you're not allowed to run. Um, if you touch a stick, then you'll be expelled on the spot pretty much. <laughs> There's no uh, sharing of food. That's forbidden. In case someone gets salmonella poisoning from eating your chick sandwich. There's no um, touching in some schools. In some schools in Australia, all the limbs have been cut off trees all the limbs that are accessible to children have been cut off so that they can't climb the trees. And so we have this fear of physical injury, which has now become so much a pandemic in our society that it's overwhelmed all the other uh, elements of the child's life. And people just perhaps stop to think that if you cut out any risk of physical injury, there's a pretty good chance it'll be damaging people in other more abstract and less visible ways so that they'll be suffering emotional damage and social damage and even cognitive damage and intellectual damage because they're so protected that their worlds are, um, are kept ridiculously safe. So the average child now has like three points in their life and it's the home, the school and the shopping mall and not many of them go outside those three points. They might be lucky enough to stay at a friend's place occasionally, a overnight uh, visit, or even with grandparents for a night or two. But, uh, yeah, as for getting out of the or along the coast or uh, going to new, even new um, different cultural areas of our society. So if you live in a city which is lucky enough to be multicultural, you can go to different shopping areas and experience 
experience different foods. And uh, I've taken kids to cemeteries and had them look at the way people from an Italian background bury their dead compared to the way people from a Jewish background or people from an Anglo background or people from an Arabic background uh, conduct funeral rites and, uh, and embellish their graves of the people who've died. So all of that is part of life and it's part of engaging with the world. It's so important. You make the point people shouldn't live second-hand lives and yet many of us have sort of falling into that trap, aren't we? We watch MasterChef rather than get in the kitchen and cook something ourselves, or we, we live vicariously. <laughs> it occurs to me, though, that some of those outdoor skills you're referring to, the ability to clamber around the coast or clamber through a forest, and I use the word deliberately. I had, I had a hilarious experience not long ago as an adult and getting on a bit, um, where I was um, walking next to a river and um, it was slippery. And I actually scrambled over this rock by putting my front hands forward and then swinging my, my legs through like a monkey. <laughs> I realised I'd sort of reverted to some kind of primate behaviour to safely navigate the risk. And, you know, that jungle yeah. gym that we mocked, you learnt about balance, you learnt about physics, you learnt about what happened when you went off too fast or, you know, missed your um, landing. It's difficult to take kids into risky outdoor environments if they haven't developed these basic understandings of the physics oh for sure and i'm not advocating that we should be reckless i'm advocating that we should be adventurous which is rather a different thing because one of the things that i kind of half feared when i started the school was that we would have this kind of shuffling kids to hospital every five minutes but it's been the opposite we have fewer injuries than at almost any school i, I can imagine and so in 16 years I've been running the first of the schools and six years for the other one, gosh, we might have had a couple of broken, I think we've had a broken collarbone at the business manager when her son was pushing her around the basketball court on a billy cart and going too fast. And uh, we've had a couple of broken fingers. But honestly, every day kids get bruises, they get greases, they get scratches, but we haven't had any significant injuries in all that time because they learn to look after themselves and they develop a new set of skills which again will be enormously helpful to them in their adult lives. There's a great career in saying that life is 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows. And so people who raise their children with the idea that they just want them to be happy are completely missing a very important point that they won't be happy all the time. That's impossible and undesirable anyway. There will be periods of grief, there'll be roadblocks, there'll be difficulties, there'll be obstacles, there'll be challenges. And so we need to give them the resilience and the inner strength to, and the creativity to combat those difficulties or to initiate those uh, experiences and to survive those periods of grief. And that will happen if you uh, protect them to an extreme extent, as so many families are rather sadly doing at the moment. We talked about this at length last time, John, and you refer to it again in the new book. You talk about the one big question uh, every Westerner, as you put it, should be asking daily. How come so many members of this generation of kids collapse so easily and quickly when things go wrong? Um, can you elaborate? Mm. Yeah, it was a frightening thing for me when I opened the secondary school and we took in kids who had different backgrounds to the ones who had been through our own school since since the, since the age of five. So suddenly we had 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds coming into the school from all over the place. And I couldn't believe what I saw for the first few weeks or even months where 
if someone lost a pencil sharpener, they'd lock themselves in the toilet and call their mother to come and pick them up, and they'd be in tears. And I'm only exaggerating slightly when I say lost a pencil sharpener because they were literally kids who couldn't find their books or couldn't find the right classroom for the next lesson who would cry and hide behind a tree. And, of course, the mobile phone is the, the, like the helicopter that rescues you from the deepest jungle. The mobile phone comes out, they ring a parent, usually, usually the mother, and sadly, a lot of the mothers come and pick them up. And these are 16-year-olds, and I'm thinking, good grief, what on earth is going on in our society that we uh, we have this generation who are unable to cope with the most trivial mishaps. So, yeah, it was um, confirmation for me that we are on the right track with what we're doing at the primary campus here, where we are having all these experiences and adventures and the kids are having a real resilience and a real strength and a real confidence. That, so, yeah, the proof of the pudding was in the eating, so to speak. The word no also is another one that you talk about uh, in the book, in, in the context of this. And it is just, it's always, you know, a, a good negotiator or a good nagging kid will keep going until they get what they want. But um, <laughs> your point is often the negotiations go on too long in situations before... A parent simply makes a decision. It's a no or it's, um, you know, in the case of the car seat struggle that you describe in the book, uh, it's brought to an end after 15 minutes when it could have been brought to an end after two minutes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what is it that you see, um, and again, without sort of returning to some kind of rigid sort of punishment mantra or, um, you know, parent as someone to be terrified of, what is it that you see would rebalance a lot of, of what's happened? I think there's a few fundamental understandings that people would be helped by having. And one is that a family, like a school, is not a democracy. And if you try to run it as a democracy, you're going to have very confused children who will be insecure and just acting in ways that are inappropriate for children. So we see families where the child is the boss of the family. And I've had some of with a child as young as three, when I've said to them, well, I said to the parent, well, who is the boss of this family? And she has said very promptly and uh, in, with some oh, self-reflection as she said it, she said, well, yeah, my daughter is the three-year-old. And I think the same thing at the school, it's a free school like Summerhill in Britain where children could turn up to class if they felt like it, but if they wanted to do something else, that was fine. We don't run the school like that. We have adults here, and the adults are expected to behave like adults, and I hire people who are adults, not just in the number of birthdays they've had, but in their maturity and in their wisdom and in their uh, life experiences that they've, they've, been, they've uh, I was going to say, enjoyed, but they aren't always enjoyable, of course. But they have had a range of experiences and so we do negotiate for sure, and we say yes plenty of times. And yet at the same time, I make sure that there's a clear distinction between adults and children, and the children are not in charge. Sorry about the background noises. I've got a walkie talkie, which uh, I'll turn off. That should be. So, yeah, it's um, just getting that uh, basic understanding that adults do have an important role to play as adults and we have to be able to be adults in our 
interactions with children. Can we talk about teachers too? Because you, 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 yeah, thank you, John. You, you write how when you were an English teacher at Geelong Grammar, a staff member stuck up a notice saying a teacher is not, followed by a long list, and you thought it would be more helpful if they'd done a teacher is. How difficult is it Mm. for teachers these days, and particularly in our packed curriculums and with the health and safety kind of environment that we've discussed, to be the sort of teacher you believe our teacher is, a good teacher is? Yeah, it's it's certainly gotten a lot harder because the job has gotten much more complex and much more demanding and covers much wider range than it used to. So it's not just a matter now of teaching them how to write three and six. It's a matter of being available to them for all kinds of needs across a wide range, and that includes obviously social and emotional and psychological. So I think, I don't know whether this has happened in New Zealand, but in Australia, it's almost like the failure of the mental health system and the public hospital system to some extent, and the failure of other agencies and institutions has meant that schools have become the sort of default setting for these problems and schools are now expected to cover such a huge range of topics and difficulties and problems that uh, we've turned, sometimes I joke that this is a psychiatric day clinic, not a school, because we do have an increase in mental health problems among young people in the last generation, which has been quite extraordinary. And so that means that, amongst other things, we need to look at the kind of people who are recruited into the teaching profession. And I think there's a problem right there because we need people who are able to be adult. So I would think that they need to have at least, I don't know, three or four years of other life experiences before they're into teaching. They shouldn't go straight from school to uni and then back to school teachers. They should go out and work on trawlers or in... Uh, in hospitals or truck drivers or whatever and just, uh, yeah, get a bit of adult life. John... But there's a big... Sorry, go on. No, you go on. Oh, well, there's a big problem now in that there are certain badges that people wear which we think means that they will automatically behave like adults and they will be the adults for us when we can't behave like adults. And so police officers, priests, teachers, doctors, nurses and so on are expected to be adults 24-7 pretty much and they're not and we get very disappointed and very angry when they can't be but it's an unrealistic expectation but nonetheless some people are better able to take that adult role when there's a crisis than others and uh, they're the people we need in teaching. Just finally given your passion for writing I was struck by this page where a brilliant young kid you know well a, a, a talented young kid had written a story and a teacher had shown it to you and she had, in her corrections, put in all these mm. safe words like um, the old fence had become the sturdy old fence. And, and again, mm. it, it's seeping even into literature that everything has to be safe. Yep, and there's an idea in many adults that they have to improve everything a child says and does. And that's not helpful. Jane Gardham, who's a wonderful British writer, says that every child's a poet until she's eight years old. And that's pretty close. I think one of the things we do that's really harmful is to laugh rather um, condescendingly when children use language creatively. 
So if they see a helicopter and they've never seen a helicopter before and they don't know what the name for that thing is, they might say, oh, my goodness, there's the biggest wasp I've ever seen. And it's eaten some people. And we laugh and laugh and tell everybody what the child said. And the child hears us doing this and thinks, oh, okay, I've stuffed that up because I'm getting laughed at. I need to learn what the adult words are. And so they quickly become very stereotyped and very cliched and predictable in their use of language, which means they're less likely to express themselves creatively or poetically or even um, communicating feelings is something that's difficult in using the English language because there's a major dearth of words in English for feelings. And uh, so, yeah, just making sure that language can be used confidently and uh, positively by children is one of the very important things we can do. John, thank you. John Marsden, Take Risks, Raising Kids Who Love the Adventure of Life. It really does reflect on his many, many experiences in the education system over all these years, starting the schools. It is packed with wisdom as always.